How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming The church is the most vocal political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual the church seems to be stuck in ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy and today our guest is Gail Song Bantam. Pastor Gail is the lead pastor at Quest Church in Seattle. She received her MDiv from Duke Divinity School and her Bachelor of Music degree from the Eastman School of Music. Where, where is that located at? In Rochester, New York. In Rochester. She also partners with the Rise Together Mentoring Network at a Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Pastor Gail has served in pastoral ministry for 20 years. When we started Imagine, I said, babe, we're doing this for 10 years and I'm out. She's done this for 20 years already. That's so amazing. Pastor Gail is particularly passionate about empowering leaders and has recently launched two mentoring cohorts specifically for women of color leaders and pastors. Pastor Gail is an ordained minister in the Evangelical Covenant Church and served as the former president of the Covenant Asian Pastors Association. Pastor Gail, her husband, Dr. Brian Bantam, got the smart, the educated family, <laughs> and their three sons reside in Seattle. Pastor Gail, truly thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's good to be here. Let's, um, Let's start with like a, a bigger picture, sort of zooming out introduction to the people. Like, what are some of the bigger picture movements in your life, when it, specifically when it comes to your relationship with the church and how some of those bigger picture movements help make sense of who you are and where you are today? Yeah, I, I don't think I ever am able to talk about my life, my calling, um, where I am today without actually talking about my four as a child. I grew up in um, a Korean immigrant Pentecostal tradition church in, in Chicago. Mm. My mom was in ministry since the time I can remember. Um, and in Korean culture, you know, it's very patriarchal and especially in my parents' generation. And so just seeing my mom really struggle for her place, but uh, intentional, resilient and just a beast of a woman knowing that God had called her even in the midst of so many obstacles. So just the formation of that, the, the reality of that allowing me to have an imagination for what women can and cannot do and the struggles entailed inside of that. In addition, when I was um, 11, my parents kind of separated for a little while um, and my mom went to seminary in Oklahoma and I ended up following her to Oklahoma, found myself in a large black um, Pentecostal church for many years after that. So my, my 
you know, they say once a Pentecostal, always a Pentecostal. Mm. And that's actually, that's probably going to come up in our conversation often. That's why I'm planting that seed right now, because there's something about my Pentecostal formation Mm. that allows me, even in this moment, with as much education as I have and experience and um, nuance as I like to hold, there's something about the Pentecostalism in me that believes in the supernatural as well. And the power of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe in the impossible. I believe mm-hmm. for uh, and imagine for something more mm-hmm. um, than what I've even experienced. And um, uh, so that's actually core to why I'm where I'm at, why I continue to press on, even in the midst of foolishness. Um, I believe that God has called me to this mm-hmm. place. And if I believe that God has called me, then I'm not doing this alone, right? God opens mm. doors, God makes a way. And so um, my mom has really laid that f- a foundation for me. She passed away when I was uh, 18. So it's, it's like me carrying on the legacy. Wow. And so the fight has become even more intense, mm. right? Because I know I'm carrying out a legacy that she never got a chance to um, see or fulfill for herself. Mm. So mm. it's a resolute. Mm. So did you... Was there a sense along the way, you know, people have unique journeys towards becoming a pastor, calling, curiosity, you know, relationships lead us along the way. Some people are all about it. Some people hesitate. Hmm. Did that, was that a slow burn for you? Did you sense that? Did that, was there a moment for you that kind of led into that? Yeah. So, you know, growing up, um, I was, I was training to be a musician, I was training to be a, a, an orchestra conductor, the first female Asian wow. American female conductor. That's why I went to the Eastman School of Music, right? Mm. Like an elite music conservatory. Uh, and then my mom dies after my first year of college, wow. just pretty suddenly of cancer. And, you know, death has a way of reorganizing and shifting our hopes, our dreams, our imaginations. And so when she died, I, you know, I had a moment, right? of being angry, all the things that grief kind of entails. Um, But it was not too long after that, that I felt like God was calling me to ministry Mm -hmm. and to be a pastor. And that was a hard decision for me because I had been doing music since I was three years old uh, and being groomed for that. I I was practicing five, six hours a day. I mean, it was intense. Um, And then to, then, then to consider, nah, you know what, you're going to go into church church ministry and especially seeing what happened to my mom you know and who would want to do that and so the narrative that I kept telling myself early on was like why would I want to do what my mom did Um, and so pretty quickly though right felt the call of God on, on my life so after I graduated went right into ministry at 21 so that's how we get to over 20 years now in ministries because wow. I, I haven't done anything else. Wow. So from that moment on, it was just, this is what I'm called to do. Wow. Um, and I don't know anything different. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Suffering and, you know, death as an extreme form of it has an amazing way to clarify things. You know, when strong suffering hits, it leads us past our, normal management techniques and internal Mm -hmm. systems of kind of control and sometimes it feels like everything goes mute 
Mm-hmm. And that's why you can hear like the little things you're anxious about, oh, that conversation or this little thing, all of that goes mute and you can hear with a great sense of clarity, a lot of the deep desires within us that a lot of defense mechanisms in day-to-day life has the ability to drown out. So yeah, that's a... Man, yeah, and it also... Yeah, yeah. It also, clarify, it also clarifies, Absolutely. right? Like what matters in life. Absolutely. Yeah, when I was 24, 25, I had a friend like almost die in my arms or I thought he was. Mm-hmm. And as it was happening and as I was holding him, it was like the whole world went silent and all I heard was, you have to talk to your dad mm-hmm. to like have a reconciling moment with my dad. I'm sitting here holding him and it was just like, that's the thing. I've tried to, the one thing I have not allowed to truly arise within me to face and feel the fullness of, and it was that moment that mm. just did it. So yeah, that's a, yeah, that's an amazing story. Was the, was the black church, the Pentecostal church, was it like a traditional, like black denomination? Was it like a four square, like, like AG type of thing or? So the pastor comes from, he's deeply immersed in Kojic or he was, uh, Church of God in Christ. Um, so every it was a non-denominational Pentecostal charismatic church, but had deep roots in the Kojic tradition. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, I have a funny thing with with black churches because when I was at Fuller, I was studying like black and womanist theology when I was there. My mentor, who I was supposed to do a PhD with, but it, it fell through, and he left the school named Ralph Watkins. He's just classic, you know, uh, black preacher coming out of the black church. Amazing guy. And here I am studying, like I'm in a, I'm in the black theology department, you know, I'm studying with him mm. and everybody else. I love black and womanist theology. That was like what shaped me the most, like when I was in grad school, but mm. I didn't, without growing up in the church, cause I came to it later in life. I told him, I was like, mm-hmm. bro, you know, all this, like, this is me. But I was like, I can't do three hour services though. I can't do, I can't. Weak. My legs, no, <laughs> I am. I, I have a low tolerance for physical pain. I'm like, dude, I can't stand that long. Like I need to sit. So I'll, you know what? I'm not even going to fight you on that. You're right. I am weak when it, when it comes to that. I don't even try to deny that. Seeing a little bit of your journey, let, let's talk about now, right? Leading, you're the, you're the lead pastor of Quest right now. I'm sure you've served in a you know, variety of different roles, you know, in, in pastoral ministry for 20 years. You know, it's safe to say the church still has a long way to go when it comes to conversations about, and also I think the way it mirrors a culture at large of systemic issues of race and sex and gender and sexuality like perpetuating some of the same ways in which all of those things are at work in our society as a whole it's in the church Mm -hmm. it takes a different form but it's you know it's just as present it's easy for those who have eyes to see to see that those barriers that still exist in the church are still getting in the way of people being able of people going on a path towards liberation, being able to thrive, having their callings affirmed, having their voices fully heard and empowered along the way. And as a, so as a Korean American woman, a leader of a church who loves the church, right? Who believes in the church, who says like, this is all I know. This is what I'm doing. Who calls me weak for not wanting to go worship for three hours. (laughs) How have you felt these barriers in your own journey? And how has that experience affected how you lead now? Like you're navigating mm-hmm. so much from a kid, 20 years of pastoral ministry. How have you come up, up against some of those barriers yourself? And how does that influence how you lead the, the things you spend your time and energy on now? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, besides the obvious, right, of being starting in ministry when I was 21, Asian American, in the South, we were in North Carolina. Um, there's not a lot of Asian Americans there. There's also these stereotypes, right, of um, what an Asian woman, or let me just be specific, what a Korean American woman ought to be like. And I don't fit any of those molds. I never have, right? So much so that a lot of folks just even growing up, even Koreans would say, are you mixed? Are you, like the, the question back to me is always, are you 100%? Mm. And if I were rude, I think back in my more um, vocal days, I would have been like 100% what? Um, mm. And I actually said that sometimes to some of my elders, but um, mm -hmm. I was just so tired of people not believing that I was Korean, mm. right? And we know our bodies do some kind of work in the world. And so even in ministry, in different contexts, in multi-contexts, you know, this notion that like, um, I don't fit that mold. Mm. Um, and it, it, was, it was actually the case here at Quest as well, in some ways, like because there were so many Asians and it had a lead pastor that was Korean American, but somehow I was, I was just different. I was always different. Mm. I was either, I was too loud. You know, I prayed too loud. I prayed too, I was too Pentecostal. I was too, uh, whatever the case may be. Mm. Um, You're just too. It's, it's too much. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like, I, I like being too much. You know, y'all are, that's, that's, that sounds like a you problem. Mm. Right. But mm. the reality is if we're going to um, kind of progress or make it in different um, different spaces of leadership um, the temptation is to kind of fall in like mm. fall in line and um, and I think for me even in the midst of all the barriers of how I am who I am being a woman right I had to leave the Kojic tradition because mm. Kojic doesn't ordain women mm. um, so I'm not I'm not above leaving places Mm. to follow my conviction mm. and looking for life. And I find mm. like in hindsight, um, you're talking to somebody who had to make a decision when my father said, you can't marry a black man mm. losing 21 years of relationship wow. with my own flesh and blood. Now you tell me whether I'm going to have a problem with an institution mm especially white institutions or organizations, whether or not I would leave you. Of course I would. Mm -hmm. um, so if I feel convicted about something, I'm going to pursue it. I'll leave whoever I need to leave in order to create life and possibility for others. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of how it's just the formation of my life, the, the naysayers, the boundaries. And this goes back to, right, what I said before. If I know that I'm called, if I know that I'm supposed to do this and I'm following what I believe to be the leading of the Holy Spirit, God is going to make a way for me. Mm. I have to be courageous in stepping out into the, sometimes the scary places. And, um, um, but it's never been just for me. Mm, yeah. Right. So the barriers I've faced, I don't want other young people to, to have to face. So what can I do to create spaces of life and wholeness and belonging and I, I've, I've seen my calling and um, take seriously my calling in that area. Mm. Yeah, if that's that makes so sense. Good. Yeah, 
I immediately think of the quote where Richard Rohr says, mystics are the most dangerous people to institutions because they're the only people who look at the institution and say, you cannot give me anything that God has not already given That's right. That's and the right. groundedness exactly. and the, the energy and the power of that definitely is uh, felt in that. You know, that the things like that, when we hear them, we're like, that's good. I'm like, but when it comes your turn, my turn, who's ever turned to walk towards the edge and actually embody that in the face of institutional trying to take things away, you feel it. You feel it in your body and it's real because it's your life now. You know, right. but that to me, that is, that is what the leadership of the church is so desperately in need of, is the people who are willing to do that in order to lead beyond whatever edges that we thought were walls that actually were just temporary things put up to keep some people safe that we're supposed to keep moving beyond. So, Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so good. You know, one of the, it's a funny thing where I feel like one of the new phrases for many white evangelical-ish types in 2020 is the phrase systemic racism right it's this mind-blowing apocalyptic there's this new thing right Shocking. that's being, being, being <laughs> discovered you know which means for people which is good it's good when people are seeing that for the first time right you know so obviously i'm i'm going to tease about it a little but what it means is that many people for the first time are making that shift from seeing racism primarily as individual bigotry to racism and white supremacy being embedded in systems and structures themselves and how those organized bodies in our world, in our country, in our states, et cetera. You know, people can see how it's at work in education, housing, all, all different industries. But as clergy people, you know, leaders in the church, pastors, what does that same spirit, if you will, of institutional racism and white supremacy look like and feel like in churches, in seminaries, in mm. the Christian industrial complex and publishing industry, right? In church mm. leadership, right? So we can talk about housing, you know, we can talk, we can go all the way back, manifest destiny, work it all the way through, right? In, in the U.S. specifically, but let's talk to a little bit about how does that feel? How does that look? How does that spirit present itself in churches and all of that? I mean, I would say even and for you me have as a seminary. minutes just on that question alone. So <laughs> Listen, no, like I feel like even as a seminarian who went to seminary later in life after doing ministry for about 13, 14 years, um, my eyes were open to different things, right? And I'm coming to seminary, not fresh out of undergrad like so many right. of the young people now, but I'm coming, having been on the ground, having done ministry, having experienced a lot of real life, tangible ministry already. So I already knew what I was going into seminary for, um, what I was looking for, what I wanted and needed out of that space. And, and you know, it was, it was a little bit mind-blowing, but not really when I was there, you know, the question of what's considered, what's considered rigorous theology, mm. right? You have so many, especially the older folks that were there in seminary, maybe second career or um, people like myself or a lot of the folks of color, the students of color who come from different kinds of ministry settings. Um, what's considered legit? Mm. Right. Why aren't experiences or why aren't people's knowledge in different capacities 
um, acknowledged in the same way. Like if you look at the classroom, it was all these like, we, I call them slow talking white boys mm. that always got the professor's ear or were considered the smart ones or the intellectuals or the academic or the ones that were considered for PhD work, right? Mm. Um, and so you see it prevalent in those spaces and how marginalized theologies are always have, have a prefix to it, right? A, a label of whether it's black theology, womanist theology, Asian American theology, etc. Um, I mean, that right there is telling in and of itself in the church. Man, I tell you, this one's a harder question for me because I didn't really grow up in white spaces. Mm-hmm. And that's just the truth. Like, I think people think that because I'm at quest or something that I am knowledgeable about white evangelical spaces, but man, I'm, I'm learning. Mm, um, about the craziness of white evangelicals. And, but I don't come from those spaces, but I, um, it's something that I've been confronted by mm. more recently in this particular context. Cause I think this church for me has probably the most white folks that wow. I've been a part of and had to lead than ever. Um, in my lifetime or in my ministry career. So um, the good thing though <laughs> is, um, I don't know, it, it's hard, right? Cause I don't ever fall for it. Mm. Um, so I do feel the pressure of, people wanting to steer toward, let's say this is a great example, people wanting to steer more toward reconciliation mm. than justice, mm. right? Because you're mindful of the white people in your midst. You're, you're wanting to centralize and care about the feelings and the transformation of white people mm. and the, um, the salvation of white people in this mm. particular area. So a lot of folks of color tend to dance around that mm. and coddle it. And I have seen that in, um, in this space, in this particular ministry capacity. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't even know what to say to that yeah. Yeah. as far as the church. I mean, part of me is like, even when I think about denominational, mm. right? In our particular denomination, even the issue of um, racism, uh, racial justice, anti-racism um, always gets pitted against the LGBTQ conversation mm. as if, mm. right? And so that to me shows me that there's a lack of ability to find the spaces of intersection, mm. to recognize the spaces of intersection that many people of color hold. Mm. Um, uh, the, the way that white supremacy is also married so intricately to patriarchy, mm. right? And being proximate to power. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Mm. It's, yeah. it's, like a, it's like a cancer, right? That just, just breeds, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's seminary. I was at Fuller for like three years. And Fuller's like, I had a great experience there. You know, I was more like definitely not fundamentalist, still has an evangelical core. Some people would consider it more like a progressive evangelical post-conservative. It's, but it still has that core, you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that I think is one of the discoveries when we talk about what does institutionalized racism and specifically white supremacy look like in ecclesiological, so church, you know, what does it look like in theological structures? It's just like, look at your syllabus. What percentage of the people of you reading are white males, yeah. right? Yep. You're like, damn, yep. like 95. Yep. And Fuller's yep. supposed to be, and, and, and like, and, you know, and Mark Laberton is the president. I know him personally, he's a good dude and Fuller's great. But I'm like, and, th- and this is a while ago, but I'm like, wow, and that was an eye-opening thing for me, you know, at, at that moment was just like, so the whiteness is obviously normative and the degree to which you move away from that center, now it's a marginalized, like, well, there's, there's theology, then there's black theology. There's, yeah. there's, there's theology, then there's womanist theology. There's theology, and there's yeah. feminist or queer theology. Yeah. And, you know, that in and of itself even for people when it comes to just growing up in America, getting education, doing things, it's just like, who are you listening to? And who yeah. are the structures elevating to the center whose voices are being, even that alone exposes the degree to which whiteness is the norm in those places. And yeah. like that institutional spirit of white supremacy is just so, you don't think, especially as a person of privilege, you don't have to think about it as you maneuver through those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting though, because my experience in seminary, while I I knew that in my head, I actually had the privilege of being married to uh, somebody who was what they call a super preceptor at Duke, Mm -hmm. and his his job right now he does work on race, theology, identity, Mm -hmm. right? So I had the privilege of having his library. And his conversations and entering into that space from a very different paradigm, mm. right? And um, which I know a lot of students don't. Mm. Um, and even in the life of the church, I've just been exposed to a lot of different ecumenical, mm. different marginalized, ethnic specific. Mm. Um, so I think my experience may be a little bit different. Yeah. in that but i'm i am hearing yeah, that yeah. like this is the experience of a lot of folks where like all they've read even folks of color all that they've read have been white men yeah right um so i, I mean i do recognize that my journey looks a little bit different and i've been privileged to be exposed to lots of different voices and um people and authors and theologians um, yeah. that have informed my faith yeah um, which i'm super grateful for absolutely well what has i always think that's an interesting moment in a person's life or season of a person's life right it, it would happen differently because growing up in a korean american church growing up in kojic traditions like there are growing up for anybody you grow up and there's some form of like this is a this is what conventional faith looks like here and we take that in we internalize that as an atmosphere like a family system but then there's moments there's like these different spaces where a person gets radicalized has a paradigm shift gets disrupted you know they read liberation theology they're like holy sh-. like 
okay, this is bigger and wider than I imagined, you know, or they're reading somebody who's just critiquing things, you know, on like a, on a philosophical level. And they're like, whoa, this is much more complex than I realized. There's a disruption, which creates like an opening to see a broader, more inclusive, wider, whether it's more social, whether it's about sexuality, whatever it is. Do you remember any, do you remember any of those specific moments, thoughts, authors where you're like, huh, like that was a disruptive moment that destabilized me, but also liberated my imagination to see more. Yeah, I would say my my conversations um, around LGBTQ, mm. um, belonging, inclusion, mm. and what the Bible says about that, mm. um, I wrestled with it for a long time. Because, you know, Pentecostals are actually very traditional and conservative, and right? It's like... I went. To, I finished my undergrad at, at Life Pacific College, which is four squares, like flagship school. So I got like okay. three years of that. Yeah. Something yeah, like and degree. it it took me a while, but it, it, the people that I were I was in conversations with, people that would like, demonstrate to me through their life, through their ministry, through their faithfulness. Man, I think. It, they were seeds slowly. I, I didn't have really an aha moment, mm. like one just like disruptive book or whatever, but it was just a combination of a lot and layers of, mm. of reading. Like over of, like years. Over years. Mm. Yeah. And conversations with my husband, right? Um, he was already over there. Mm. And I would just ask questions. Yeah, uh, uh. I, would, I would ask dumb questions. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I mean, we, we're good with disagreeing on things. I mean, listen, yeah, when yeah. we met, when we met, he didn't believe women should be in ministry. Nice. Don't ask me why I married him. I don't even know what I was thinking. I probably well, he just... was trying to, he was trying to help you <laughs> not fall into the temptation of the devil calling you into full time. He was there to help. But you know, I didn't even realize we had that conversation. Until years later, he's like, remember, I, told, I was like, oh, I must have just blocked it out. Because mm -hmm. what you're not going to do is block my call. Mm, yeah, yeah. But I'll marry you anyway. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, I'll do it. You can be with me, but I'm doing all I of mean, this. You're, you're okay to follow me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's been, it's layers of books, of people, of compassion, of relationships. Mm. Um, yeah, all of it. Yeah. You know, I was planning to get into this a little bit later. I had some more questions, but let's stay with this for a sec. I appreciate you saying that. From what I see from a distance is that it seems that you personally and Quest have been on an evolving journey in your relationship with the LGBTQ community. Now, here's one of my thoughts over the years when I see pastors, friends wrestling with church, LGBTQ people, inclusion, what is the nature of that relationship, et cetera. One of my thoughts is that there's a lot of pastors who, and there's no judgment on this at all, who unconsciously or consciously avoid going on an honest journey of truly being open to re-engage, rethink, and reimagine how they think about the church and LGBTQ folks. Because I feel like deep down, they know they might end up in a different place and they understand immediately the ramifications of what that would mean for their concrete life. Denominations, jobs, money, family, kids in school. What are we going to do, right? There's these massive implications. 
do you see that amongst like peers, friends? Have you ever felt along the way any of that within yourself where you're like, oh damn, like, am I really going here? Because I've had those moments and I never even felt really ideologically connected with churches in general because I didn't grow up with it. So I think I have have less baggage to take off and less like Mm. I'm betraying mom and dad right now if, you know, I love Mm -hmm. gay people or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've had moments in my own journey for the past 15 years where I will read something and I, my heart will like sink into my stomach and I'm just like, Oh damn. Like I made all the connections. I know what I believe. I know what that means. I don't believe I know what that means for my future. And I just get for a second. I'm like sick to my uh-huh. stomach. Like, Oh, this is like, but I also know I can't not see this. I know yeah. what I've seen. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Talk about that for yourself or what you see even amongst like you have friends who are pastors and wrestling with things. Yeah. I'm really interested in that. So I, this is what I see. I see lots of layers. I see pastors for whom they know what they believe mm-hmm. and they're very traditional mm-hmm. right. um, because it's their conviction. And um, I see pastors for whom they're, they know what they believe and it's more progressive in this area. Um, but there's a cost. They know that there's a cost, so they don't want to engage it. I also know that there are pastors for whom they lead a very multi-church mm. um, with multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multicultural, and they're trying to be, as respectful and careful with the the cultural realities mm-hmm. um, right let me just give you an example um, and I think this is what makes leading a multi church very challenging because mm. you can't always just lead with your conviction and trust that everybody's going to follow it, it takes some massaging it takes understanding it actually takes some knowledge of where people are at, not just in their theological conviction, but in their cultural reality. So Quest, I'll just take Quest for an example. We have um, a growing congregation of black folks. Mm. Now, our black folks are very diverse. Mm. We have African-Americans. We have African immigrants. Mm. Um, and I've even been learning that there are some countries in Africa for whom if you come out, you could die, Mm. right? Or be in prison. There's also the reality of a history here in America, um, a racist colonial history here in America that emasculated black men. I understand why a certain notion of masculinity, um, why some people want to uphold a certain notion of masculinity in certain communities of color. Um, I, I come from a culture that's very patriarchal, Korean culture, right? Um, there's an order. Men predominantly do this, women do that. Um, so I understand 
the complexity. Of course. Right? Even though I might hold a particular conviction, and I've held this conviction for a while now, mm. even though our church for a while held a different position. Um, so I have the capacity, and I know there are pastors that have the capacity to hold space for diverse convictions. Um, so I think there, I, I'm coming across, maybe because I lead a multi-church, I'm coming across more pastors that are reaching out to me in those spaces. Mm. How do you be true to your kind to lead your church um, in this direction yet hold space for diversity? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the tension that I've been seeing more often mm-hmm. than not. Um, obviously, too, there are pastors of color for whom um, there's not a lot of options. Mm. There's For women, there's not a lot of options. So, so to say, oh, I can just give up my credentials, mm. that I worked seemingly a little bit more f- for at a higher cost mm. for many folks. Uh, many folks not even being able to go to formal seminary route, but all of our, I mean, talk about, talk about systemic racism, right? That you have to have seminary degrees, a formal MDiv in most denominations wow. to even go through a credentialing process. Wow. Um, so for people to consider, hey, my conviction on this could potentially defrock me. Mm. of my credentials and for many pastors of color that prefix in front of your name legitimizes your call because your skin doesn't Mm. your gender doesn't Mm. right like a white man can go around get a job at another place get a job at another place can go move to another denomination but not so much for women Mm. right not so much for people of color Right. And sometimes we can walk into a room and if we don't have reverend in front of our name or a PhD after our name, nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to take you seriously. So there's a cost Mm. that I think people are counting. Yeah. And um, for some, it's their livelihoods. Right. To lose your credentials also means you lose a lot of things that the denomination also supports mm-hmm. a pastor in. And so it's complicated. Absolutely. It's complex. And I can understand why mm-hmm. pastors would. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like one, I appreciate that. It's such a, you know, a broad, generous, you know, pastoral along with you know the prophetic energy you know having the pastoral vision to care for people and to know what the real life costs are you know what integrity what alignment might cost somebody in this particular tradition you know in a way you saying things in your denomination will affect you in ways that would never affect me because of the social location I occupy how I've grown up you know what legacies I have behind me um so i appreciate that a lot i think it's good it's good for the listeners to listen in and hear this i think because you know so often the conversations they're theological right we're talking about the church needs therapy how do we sort of dismantle disentangle for the sake of moving forward which is all necessary but people don't always get the further insights and visions into like 
what that real, what that pastor is facing. When they go into that meeting and say that thing, you didn't know what it was like when they didn't sleep the night before. Right, you didn't right. know what it was like, what it did to their body during the week walking into it, you know? So I think, right. yeah, it's good. I'm glad people, people don't always get a glimpse into that, the life as a pastor, especially one who's really trying to be truthful, you know, who's trying to be truthful in a, in a culture that doesn't always want to hear the truth, doesn't always want to know what time it is. And I think to even with the church's relationship with LGBTQ people, and one of the things I've seen over the years for a lot of Christians is, and this is just like not just formally educated leaders, but just, you know, everyday folks, lay people, people in the church, people who love the church, is there seems to be this ongoing tension between the head and the heart. Mm. I see that, you know, pastorally, people were in their heart like, dude, I don't care that... Mm. You know, I'm thinking of a couple in our church, Drew and Tanner are gay. Like, it's, I don't care. I just, they're, they're a part of our thing. We love them. They know our son. It is, it just is what it is. Mm-hmm. But they've grown up in the church. They have a conventional way of seeing, right? They have a desire to be faithful to the scriptures, which I respect. And it's like, sometimes it can look as if their heart is taking them places their head is not ready to go yet. So it's almost like on a, on practically I can fully embody love inclusivity, but on a theoretical level, I feel like I still have to stay here to Mm -hmm. like, for me to feel okay. You know, I I feel like I might be betraying God. I feel like I might Mm -hmm. be betraying or whatever it is. And -hmm. I think people sit with that tension a lot. Um, which is interesting because if that's the case, it can feel as if sometimes the Bible gets in the way of people feeling the permission to love and embrace others fully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible can be used for liberating purposes. It can be used for oppressive purposes. We see it all the time, right? It's historical. Mm-hmm. It's all over the place. Speak to that a little with parishioners, friends over the years, other leaders. Have you ever felt that tension yourself? I, I have over the years. And I, I don't, I've never even had that much skin in the game of like, I don't even have that much to lose because I didn't grow up around people who are going to be mad at me about this, you know? So yeah, yeah. I feel like that tension is pretty real for folks right now in our culture in the church. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and this is where I think... Um, this is where I think the Pentecostal plays a role, right? Um, I love what, I love what Reverend Tracy Blackman says. She says, um, the Bible is not God's book about extraordinary people, which is often the way we look at it, right? That's why we worship it. Sometimes some people worship the Bible because they believe it's God's book about extraordinary people. Mm. When in fact, it's actually the people's book about an extraordinary God. Mm. When you look at the arc of the narrative, the story, it really is about love. God's love for this world. God's love for creation. And the last time I checked, when I, when I fell in love, you follow your heart. Mm. You don't wait until your mind catches up. Mm. Right? And if our church waited on my mind to catch up on what I thought about something or whether or not I understood something, we would be in trouble because I don't understand a lot of things about God. What I know is that um, when we 
when we focus, when we center our lives on the radical, inclusive love of God. Um, it changes us. And I think that's the pneumatological reality of faith, right? If, if you believe in the work and the movement of the Holy Spirit, um, sometimes you move in a spaces, you move in a direction that does not make sense. And when you read scripture, and when you read scripture well and honestly, a lot of things don't make sense. Jesus didn't make sense, right, to his disciples. Like the fact that the fact that Jesus's life confounded boundaries. That Jesus could literally in his embodied life say that, "Oh, I'm sorry. Covenant, that's going to mean something else now." Mm. It's not just for y'all. Mm. Oh, but I thought you were the Messiah for us. Uh, actually, all these people who are out here are now going to be brought in. Yeah, wow. When he touches the leper, when he speaks to the, the Samaritan woman, when he eats with the tax his life don't make sense. Mm. Right? And so I follow that kind of God. I follow a God that don't make sense. Mm. Um, and I think when we get stuck in our heads we have to actually ask ourselves like what are we trying to control mm, yeah and are you honest about what you know and when you're wrestling with this thing over here cuz you don't understand it are you then suggesting everything else that you believe you understand all of that and you understand god so well that you can make a judgment over here Right. And it doesn't leave when we when we are stuck in our heads, it doesn't leave room for the movement of God and the mm -hmm. power of God to confound us, to surprise us. And it doesn't leave room for the miraculous. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's where I mean, I think that's where I'm, I feel sorry for the people who get stuck in their head. Like for me, it's like move with your conviction. Move with the power of God, right? Like when Elijah, I mean, I'm struck by this story more recently in a different kind of way when Elijah was like, you know what? You, you create your altar and I'll create mine. Call on your God. I'll call on my God. And let's see whose God lights this thing on fire. They did what they did, dry. Elijah sets up his altar, cuts up the ox, and then he says, put some water on that. Now put some more water on that. And now do it a third time until it said everything was drenched. The trench around the altar was filled up. That don't make sense. When the altar is soaking wet. And then he says, God, show yourself. That does not make sense. And God can light something that's drenched on fire. That's, that's the God I believe in. You know? So with every, with every with every head bowed, and with you know every I mean? come to Jesus, <laughs> come to Brown <laughs> Refugee. You know, come on, come on, come to Jesus, come to that Jesus. You know, for uh, it's so good. It, it's an interesting pattern to see for so many people, 
for intellectual for people who consider themselves intellectual do a lot of reading people who are evolving on on the church's relationship with the lgbtq community oftentimes there seems to be this recurring theme of it actually wasn't oh i read this particular book and that tipped me or that changed me you know it, it plays a role but they're like actually my son came out as gay mm -hmm. or my best friend or my friend asked me to do their wedding or mm -hmm. this person I had looked up to forever came out and like they were the they had one of the most dominant roles in shaping me into the person of faith I am today and you know and they were mm -hmm. gay they were lesbian they were bi they were trans whatever it is you know it's the it's the personal when the people when the people you talk about becomes the person you talk to that mm -hmm. flesh and blood presence of the other person has the ability to change you. Mm -hmm. You know, that's mm -hmm. what I've seen mm -hmm. so much on this issue. That's why even for Imagine, one of the main initiatives that we've organized over the years, I was just reminded on Instagram today on like the memories thing where it was like three years mm -hmm. ago today, we started the first cohort that we mm -hmm. have called Saying Grace. And it's where it's myself and a woman who's actually now a part of our church at the time. She was a professor at University of Hawaii by Christian always kind of struggled with the church and we led these four-week cohorts where it was half straight Christians and half LGBTQ folks who all identify with Jesus to different degrees of whether they're in the church or not right so half right, gay right. and half straight with conventional views and then we would do this four weeks like a night on mutual vulnerability then we would do a night where we say oh well straight people in the church need to learn how to listen so this is a night for lgbtq folks to tell their stories you know what is it like growing up coming out your family the church how it's just like these are the most traumatic things right. you're gonna hear like they're the most powerful like no you're just the most, uh, right. most beautiful spaces you know where it's like time like literally time stops and everyone's just like collective mind we're all here it's it's amazing and that was always our deepest conviction for people who are like, I'm still, you know, not sure where I think. And we have, there's people in our church where there's diversity around thinking about it too, you know, mm -hmm. amongst the, the, the congregation. But I'm like, for me, when I'm in those moments, I'm like, I want everybody to feel this moment, to feel their mm -hmm. humanity after that. Cause mm -hmm. a lot of times someone might leave that with conventional views and might not change their beliefs right away. But they're like, I will do anything. We're family now. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And sometimes yep. Yep. that does. Their head catches up with them sometimes. Yeah. You know? so yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with your experience along the way, for people who are wrestling with it, you know, still struggling with like, oh, gay people in the church. I want to love them, but hate, love the sinner, hate the sin. How do I, is me just being cool with them, condoning? Like, those are the things that are in people's minds. You know, can mm -hmm. I just be cool with them? Or am I condoning a lifestyle, even though it's not a lifestyle? Like, this is what's in people's heads. What would you want the people who are still feeling that tension to experience? You know, when you think about your own personal relationships with folks over the years, where you think of a moment, you're like, man, but if you felt, that or looked into their eyes or saw that moment you know and just how you know that what that does to us it it does but i i kind of want to push back on that because i know that there have been relationships you see, right we were Keep we were about to we were about to end this interview and she wanted to make sure that she disagreed with me and, you know push back against me once before we got mm -hmm. it over so no but this is really important because throughout time his historically people have been in relationships with women, with half the population, and yet women shouldn't be in ministry. Mm -hmm. 
People have been in relationship and have known black folks. And yet you are not human. Mm. You can't take communion with us. In a, right. Uh, you're still in, you're still enslaved. Um, people have known LGBT folks mm. and yet they don't belong. Right. So part of me is like, I want to always ask the question, why do you feel like your faith, your Christianity, your form of following Jesus has, has to police other people? Mm. What are you getting out of that? What are, you, uh, what are you trying to uphold? What are you holding onto for yourself? And everywhere I turn, I realize that oftentimes the boundaries that are created through Scripture, text scripture verses that are taken out of context or historically the bible being like just used as a weapon to put people in their respective places uh, oftentimes what i have found is that white cisgender men are never implicated in the boundaries mm. never right um and that actually is what made me think like what are you holding on to? Like for you to not pull up another seat at the table, you've been invited to in Christ. You didn't, you didn't create this table. This table is not yours. Mm. You've been invited to this table for you to not feel like you can pull up another chair for somebody else. That's different than you. What's, what's at the root of that? Mm. What are you trying to maintain? what does that do to you? Mm. Does that make you feel better? Mm. Does that make you feel stronger? What power, like what, like what is that? And I want to get to the root. Like I wish I can host a conference or something where I can just ask that question and let people talk. What are you holding on to? What are you going to lose? Like it's that scarcity mentality, like mm. that God is only enough for, you know, that's why I hate that model of like the, a, a less of me, more of God, as if God is contained in a box. Mm. And if I become more, it's such a, it's such a, a, a white construct, right? For people of color who've all, always diminished, for women who are always diminished, the more of me, the more fullness of who I am means the more of God is revealed. God cannot be contained. Do you know what I'm saying? So I, I, I think that's at the root of anybody trying to hold on to something for, for whom they're not actually implicated in it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I think yeah. relationships actually then, whether it's our children, whether it's people we know, friends, that kind of forces us really quickly to ask that question. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's on point. And when you say that the end, it forces people to ask the question quicker. You know, that's the other with a capital O actually telling the truth on those who are used to the same. You know, that person has the key to unlock the imagination and our, why our hearts of our, why our parts of our hearts close off. What are we holding on to? What is this power right. thing? What is it? What exists within me that needs not only for me to be here, but for you not to, right? There's something deeper right. at work there, you know? So, right, right. Yeah. Oh, that is such good stuff. Here's a question as first of all, for this last question, thank you again 
This is mm. awesome. I'm glad we had this time together. You're leading a church through this COVID quarantine life changing thing, right? Mm. Very unique time to be leading, very unique time to be pastoring, many challenges on many levels trying to do that. Besides the, we live in a story that is all, I mean, it could be that too, you know, but you know, we live in a story where mysteriously without knowing all the details, somehow we believe this is all moving towards oneness with no more tears and justice and unity, et cetera, right? But on a concrete level, what is bringing you hope and what is giving you life during this season? Yeah. Um, people. Mm. People frustrate me, but people also give me life mm. and hope. And just on a practical level, I'm so proud and honored to be leading a community of believers and Christ followers mm. um, in quest. Um, I never wanted to do this journey alone. And these are some incredible people at quest as diverse as they are. You know, I mean, we're just coming off the topic of LGBTQ and, our church just recently becoming fully inclusive, fully affirming of our LGBTQ siblings. Wow. You know, that was a church-wide effort. And wow. we are diverse on this. Even from our leadership, we're diverse on this. And yet, the people are the ones that say, you know, Pastor Gail, even though we may not be there yet ourselves or personally or understand fully theologically or scripturally, mm. We trust what God is doing. Awesome. We trust the move of God. And anytime we are creating more space for people to belong, I'm down with that. Mm -hmm. Right? To hear those words from your own community in their diversity. Uh, people who trust your leadership enough to say, you know, we're in this. What do you need from us? Um. Man, there's nothing more life-giving or hope-filled than that, knowing that you're moving um, with a community of Jesus followers that are willing to give up everything. To leave the 99 mm. for the one. Mm, love it. Yeah, so good. And, and even for me, it's it's powerful to hear a lead pastor, but someone who's been in pastoral ministry for 20 years say that the thing that's bringing them hope and giving them life is people. Because mm. I think there's, there, there's a lot of reasons along the way for pastors. And I see it, you know, to stop believing in people, to shut down parts of their heart, you know, to feel like the hurt or the, the burden that you, whatever that you, they carry is too much. So to see somebody 20 years in leading pumped up, still ready to stand for the three hour services when I sat. Listen, let's go. <laughs> wait until, wait until this, uh, wait until this pandemic is over. I, I told my church, we're going to have a six hour service. I'm going to be laying on top of everybody, touch, <laughs> worship. I mean, everything, everything. You're going to be, you're going to be crowd surfing from the, on the first Sunday back. What's that? So you're going to be crowd surfing through the crowd on the first Sunday back. You know what? Touching every head. 
I want to be, <laughs> you should have seen me during our imposition of ashes. I might have done the sign of the cross on people's foreheads like 20 times each. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's like, not it. yeah. oh, it's not good. It's not good enough. <laughs> Again. Again. <laughs> uh, I yeah. Love it. Yeah. No, I appreciate you coming on so much. And I'm so grateful for mm. the listeners to hear somebody who isn't just talking about things eloquently but practicing and embodying this radical way of jesus so powerfully and practically you know and i feel like Mm. people feel that energy even just through the conversation we had so yes gail song phantom yeah of course thank you appreciate Uh, you man yeah thank you for your time and uh yeah hopefully the next time we get to talk it'll be the next time you and the family come out here Let's do it. Yes. Thanks.